Okay, guys. I've done many takes of this intro, and I'm having a hard time. Full transparency. I've probably recorded like 20. It's not going well. <laughs> I don't know why. I just get, I, yeah. You know how it is, guys. This is part of it. This is part of the creative process. Some days it's just not working. So anyways, welcome to Create Consume. This is my last take, and then I am just publishing it. Because in episode six, I don't know, with Nico, we talked about the importance of authenticity and launching ugly sometimes. So that's what we're just going to do here, guys. You're looking behind the curtain and seeing the ugly truth. Welcome to Create Consume. I'm Joe Bowers, your host and fellow seeker of the ultimate secrets of the creative process, which I am trying to find and working really hard at it via conversation with really interesting people. And that's one way. And that's what you're listening to right now is my interviews with brilliant creative people in the hopes that association with a wide variety of these people and the right conversations, it will yield some insight into what's going on in their heads. What makes them different than me? What gives them such a broad access to the creative genius and the wells of insight and inspiration that live within us? I'm learning a lot by doing this. I hope you guys are too. That's one way that I'm looking for the secrets of the creative process. I'm also doing it by reading a lot of books. And if you're following my Instagram, which I recommend you do, uh, I post a lot about the books that I'm reading and I post a little bit about the research that I've been doing. And I'm putting that research down, but got a lot of interesting things happening there. A lot of insight. I'm looking at a wide range of historic thinkers and creators and trying to find what they have in common. And they don't have a lot in common, but the things that they do have in common are important and compelling. And that's the thesis that I'm currently working on. But to get back to Vexta, she's working on some cool things with her friend Amy, she's actually got a particular project that I wanted to give a quick shout out to. Amy's also now a friend of mine, very talented artist herself, and they are both working on a project called Bloom, which is a project that is like half art project, half environmental project, I guess. I don't want to describe it because I'm going to butcher the whole thing, but you should be interested in it, and I'm going to let Amy actually give her her little description of it in her own words. And uh, so here's Amy. Bloom explores the rapid denigration of Tulum's coral reef. The Caribbean reef has degraded by 80% in the last 30 years due to climate change and irresponsible human custodianship, meaning people polluting our, our ocean, people touching the coral, um, also having to do with uh, rising sea temperatures. So we've taken common motifs that are found between mine and Vexus practices, such as like we use a lot of the natural world, our place within it. We're both super interested in mythology and the divine. And we wanted to use that practice to guide the creation of this like immersive 3D sculptural artwork. Our installation focuses on like 
the impact of humanity on the local environment, but in particular, the coral of Tulum's barrier reef system. So I've been grateful enough to contribute a little bit to this project. Not a lot because I'm basically useless, but you can help by donating to this project. They are looking for funds and they are trying to raise money. So if you have any money like sectioned off, you know, for, you know, you want to donate to a Burning Man art car or something, which I mean, is cool. Don't get me wrong. Great. But you know, maybe a little temporary. Whereas this project is going to be lasting and permanent and also help the environment. And maybe you should just contribute to your own immortality by becoming a part of it. Might be a good idea. I would recommend it. I think it'd be cool. If you're interested in that, I'm going to drop some links in the show notes here so that you can easily access it and easily send money to these guys so they can get their project done. Or you can, if you just want to find out more, that will also be available to you. But yeah, check out Bloom with Amy and Vexta. Good job, guys, on such a cool project and working so hard on it. So I'm just going to go into then the conversation with Vexta and get done with this intro because, man, it's been frustrating. But Vexta and my conversation was really great, and I hope you get a lot out of it. So let's just dive right into that. Welcome to Create Consume. Once again, I'm Joe Bowers, your host. Thank you for being here. see how that goes okay so first tell me tell people who are listening where they can find your work where can they find your work so so you can find my work on the internet yes um under my artist name which is vexta v-e-x-t-a mm-hmm. um all social platforms are that and my website is vexta.com.au and cool. you can basically put me into the internet things appear and you're available for hire as a muralist Yes. As an artist for commissions? Yeah. Yeah. I predominantly make paintings, but also soundscapes, installations, sculptures. Installations, sculptures. Yeah. Sculptures as well. Just started doing some sculpture installation yeah, stuff. Yeah. So I did I did a piece here for Via Pescadores that's like these big concrete kind of mm. pyramid structures. Oh, yeah. Are you, are you and Amy both trying to get that contract with the underwater reef structure yeah that's oh a gosh, project that's so cool. that we have slowly brewing have you heard back yet no but what i mean we're, you we're planning to hear back on like sunday i know i know yeah <laughs> <laughs> mexican style um mm. hopefully i mean we're planning to make it happen no matter what so yeah so since i recorded this podcast they were actually accepted and the project is on so we were talking about this right before they got accepted, but it's on now, guys. So congrats to them. I've been talking to Amy a little bit about 3D modeling. She's like trying to yeah. model it herself, yeah. having no background in 3D modeling, which yes. is respectable. Yes. But I also probably could help. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, yeah, I've had a couple of... It's been interesting being here because I've had a few people who want me to do like 3D work. Oh, really? And I'm like, 
I don't know how to do 3D modeling. Locally? Yeah. Really? Yeah, well, like, I think based off the fact that I did the other sculptures and, uh, you know, and there's, like, good builders here. Mm-hmm. Um, things can be produced fairly cheaply, which is exciting. But, yeah, I had this project that is on pause now, but it was I was like, okay, I'm going to have to learn how to 3D model yeah. this large structure to have it built. I was like, oof. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's exciting to kind of have something like that on your list to, to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always fighting the urge to learn more software and 3D modeling because each, each tool kind of lends itself to some specific forms and yeah. capabilities and I feel so constrained by what I know and I, I don't I want to expand those constraints. But Yeah, of course. Um, okay, so they know where to find you. Yes. I, you know, we've jammed on like very surface level questions about what you do, but like give me some background on like you were living in New York for a while? Seven. Oh, you lived in New York for seven eight years? years? Oh, I'm really bad at time. And you're from originally? Australia. What part though? Born in Sydney, but I also lived from Mel- in Melbourne for a long time. So I feel kind of like Jewel City. That's right. We talked about that. What, yeah. And what neighborhood in Melbourne? Uh, North Fitzroy. Oh yeah, right on. Yeah. And I, t- I told you I worked in the office in Fitzroy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That was always my neighborhood. So I kind of feel like I was like... You know, like my childhood sort of adolescence was like Sydney and I lived like up near Byron Bay for a couple of years. And then I feel like my, you know, my adulthood like was Melbourne sort of thing. So that's mm-hmm. why I kind of feel dual city because I became an artist in Melbourne. Yeah. You know, all of my, those sort of friends that you make in, your, you know, your like 20s and stuff, like that and, was there. And yeah, good heritage to, and pedigree to claim. As yeah. a street artist and a muralist yeah. is Melbourne. Yeah. I don't think people realize how street art Melbourne is. Totally, like, totally. Huge. Yeah. And that's why I kind of ended up in a, with a career because that's what I started doing there. And then, really? you know, yeah, like for sure. And how did that start? Because you just told me that you got a media communications degree. Yes. You didn't study art. No. So I went, so basically I went to university. I ended up with a place in visual arts and a bachelor of arts, Hmm. which is, I don't know why I got offered two was an anomaly because usually you just get the one that you apply, you put on your list after high school or whatever. So I ended up with two places and literally like in the line to like, you know, enroll going, which one, which one, which one? I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. know. And, like, my mom being like, no, you just do visual arts. Like, you'll never have a career as an artist. Like, that's not a sound thing. Like, and I was always interested in media communication. So I was like, she was, you know, like, you should do a Bachelor of Arts. And so I did with the, like, plan to to shift into media communication. So I, like, studied a lot of sociology and things like that. (laughs) Basically did media communications like theory and analysis, learned a lot about the media, got to the end of that degree and like had an epiphany after soon after leaving. I was like really into radio, really into exposing ideas that I thought were valuable, that were creative and also like some environmental issues. And but I kind of got to the end and I was really successful at what I was doing in the radio scene. And but I had this epiphany that. Um, I needed to be on the other side of the microphone. Like, I remember just being like, 
I just one day realized I was like, I'm never going to be fully satisfied talking about other people's work. I need to be making work that's talked about. Oh, it was as simple as that, but I had no idea how to get from A to B. So I just like, was like, I'm not going into media, which like devastated my parents. They're like, you just did four years. Right. (laughs) And now you're throwing it away. And I was like, yes. And they're like, for what? And I was like, I'm not sure, you know? Yeah. So then I spent some time traveling and kind of thinking about this stuff, not really having a lot of direction on how to do it. And went into like some sort of social activism stuff. Oh, interesting. Realized I wasn't also particularly good at it. You know, like I was <laughs> okay. like incredibly passionate about it, but I was like, I'm not a biologist, you know, to really enact change. I was like, you kind of need to be a scientist, you know, um, Potentially. The stuff that I was interested in was, you know, forestry oh. issues and stuff like that. And I was like... Environmental. Yeah. And so around that time in Melbourne, that was when, like, stencils were sort of appearing on the street. I think Banksy had come, like, once right. on, like, a kind of Australian-Japan tour. And, you know, all my life I'd been making art and was inspired by art. That was going to be my question. You made art... I mean, it sounds like you have a similar path that a lot of my peers and even myself had is that mm-hmm. we, were, we had creative tendencies growing up yeah potentially shamed either by other people or by our own selves mm-hmm. to try to make get a real job essentially yeah. so when we go to university we try to find something that's like tangentially creative yeah but also like sounds like it would earn a salary yeah and then the older we get we just start veering back towards the arts a hundred percent yeah I remember like just when I really thought about it, I was like, this is clearly what I should have been doing my right. entire life. Like when I was really young, like, like I was drawing my first recognizable pictures when I was like two years old. Right. Like when my mom told me this later, I was like, why didn't you send me to a creative school? <laughs> like other kids aren't doing that till like four, five, six. Right. And I'm like writing books. I was like designing my own workspaces, which were Ooh. art studios and so when I look As back, a kid, you were designing like a workspace. Yeah, like I was like I would do these plans where I w- and I try to convince my parents. Well, the most elaborate was like underground in the backyard where there was going to be like this tunnel going down to an underground room that would be my workspace. Oh wow! Or like I would try to convert my closet. So you, wait, wait, you were drawing this out like on yeah, paper? like on a little piece of paper. Oh wow! Or I would try to convert my closet into my workspace. Um, but I think also with that, like I was influenced, like my father was a perfumer. So we always had like a, an office at home that he worked from and he had a lab that he went to at my grandma's property to like work on scents. And then he okay. worked, had his own company. You, you and, had kind of a, an example. Yeah. Of like, this is what, you know, you this do. This is what creative people do. This are. is what creative people do. You have this space that you do your like lab in, That's your like, experiments. So that was probably influential on me as Which well. Which is honestly one of the greatest parts about being a creative is yeah. the spaces. The lab. <laughs> yeah, the lab, the studio. The, yeah. Like, there's just something, it's it's so a realm of meditation mm-hmm. space, it's sacred. Totally. And when you don't have one, you suffocate and die. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I was on the road a lot last year. I think I told you like mm-hmm. five months pretty continuously. Yeah, and I started to be like, who am I? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm an artist, but I don't have that grounding. And, totally. you know, coming back to Tulum and setting up my space here has been, like, so good for me. Yeah, to, like, I honestly, my space. I, I've been not in a good space the last two years period. I came to that epiphany recently. It was just like, oh, it's because I don't have a space. Yeah. My space was at work, and my, my space at work was garbage. 
Yeah. And I just got, I just kind of did the good boy thing and tolerated that. Mm-hmm. And be like, okay, I can work within these constraints. And my soul slowly rotted. Yeah, it's difficult. And getting a space and having control of that space, and even, even though the space isn't that great currently, just even having that control and, and allowing to, you know, myself put my own meaning into it just mm-hmm. changes everything. Totally. It's really, really important. So whatever, no matter how small, no matter how ghetto or messy or chaotic, like... Oh, yeah. I've worked in some ghetto spaces. <laughs> your space here is very nice. My space here is really nice. But yeah, you know, when I've just been like, I need this space. I need that space, you know, especially yeah. like early on where you just have to try to make something work. Yeah. When you're, you know, have less money and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And some of my best spaces have been like the most ghetto. Yeah. Like shared, like with my bed. Yeah, and, oh, definitely, and definitely. Paintings like uh-huh. turn over. I had play. like a space, the space that I had in Melbourne for a long time. Um, I set up with a friend of mine, and it was we had a recording studio in the back and some art studios in the front. Yeah. It was a shop oh front. And part of us doing that was like we're going to immerse ourselves in our work. So yeah. I had this space in the shop front, and I got like this really big like platform built, and I would just literally climb up the ladder like out of the mess to go to sleep. And they'd just wow. be like paper everywhere, yeah. paint. Awesome. And I Beautiful. really felt like I was climbing out of like an art, not garbage dump tip, but like there just was, you know, I would climb out of my work to sleep and then yeah. climb back into it in the morning. And I did it on purpose because I was like, this is going to make me get good really fast because right. I'm living and breathing it. Yeah. Now absolutely. I like to separate, but you know, I was like, yeah. I'm going to do that for a while. There is that balance. And I think it is going in and out of it. Like sometimes you need mm-hmm. to be totally 100% immersed. Well, once you're totally 100% immersed, you can sometimes lose track of life, which is 100%. the greatest source of inspiration. Yeah. And you kind of have to you go back to that. Yeah. it's. I think it's really important to, especially if you're starting out and you're early, you're on in your creativity, whatever that mm-hmm. is that you're committing yourself to, is to like, you know, be, be mindful of that. Be like, you know, okay, I'm going to live like that for a year or six months or whatever, like totally immersed. Because when you do that, like a whole lot of other stuff will suffer. Like you won't yeah. go to the gym. You won't right. like your social life will suffer, like things like that. But you'll, the benefits is that other stuff will like grow. Like you it's have just, the richest fertilizer on it. Yeah. You're, you're sharpening your tools so that yeah. when you, so when you go out and live life again and yeah. start gathering all these stories, these narratives, these mm-hmm. relationships, these heartbreaks, these epiphanies, you have sharp tools with which to yeah. Carve out of them something meaningful in your work, but without those. Exactly. Yeah. And that was really hard for me. I like I found so much comfort in the grind of the creative work. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to leave that little the bubble. Yeah, that little <laughs> bubble of just that being all I did. Oh totally. Totally. And yeah. my work suffered for it. I just had zero. I was creating work in a vacuum. Yeah. 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 And so it's, it's like marrying those two real world and and that Mm -hmm. like intellectual space and hard work space yeah so let's go back a little bit Mm -hmm. communications degree communications degree you mentioned how that was helpful for you you mentioned being in melbourne and that's kind of when street art started but really really how did street work street art start for you was there like an inception point was there a A what point an inception point or a, a, a moment where you felt that you, you knew that that was going to be something you did? Uh, like, I guess, uh, well, so I had, I guess there's like multiple steps. So I, you know, stencil art in particular was like 
taking off in Melbourne and I'd been traveling in return and I always loved photography. Like I, my father gave me cameras from when I was like six, seven years old constantly. Right. So I love photography. I'd love printmaking for a long time. So when I started to see stuff appear on the streets, I was like, oh, this marries these two interests of mine really nicely. Yeah, printmaking and stencils. I can yeah. see that connection there. It's not, yeah, it is a printmaking form. Yeah. Yeah. It's and brushes and paints and mm-hmm. everything else. It's like yes, yeah. structured. Yeah. And so, and I really thought that everything that everyone was creating was like super unique without realizing that a lot of people were just like using magazine imagery or whatever. So yeah. I really was like, I'm shooting photos, I'm making stencils. Like I'm working really hard on my concepts, but I was like doing it kind of on my own. I didn't really know any other artists and like running around at night painting on the streets, which was super fun by myself. Illegally. Illegally. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, having a great time. And then, um, I met, it was like a friend of mine who was like in the bike courier scene who was like, Oh, I know some other artists doing the same stuff. And I was like, Oh wow. Like introduced me. So he introduced me to some other artists uh, Sorry, what scene? He was a bike courier, like a messenger. Oh, okay. Where they bike deliver. Courier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, where they deliver stuff. Okay, so he knew people on scene introduced you. Yeah, and introduced me, took me to like an exhibition of like some uh-huh. of the pioneers of that scene in, in Melbourne, and I met them. And at that time, there was a, um, a bunch of artists that would put on these illegal exhibitions called empty shows where they would take over an empty building and. Oh, cool. yeah that was going to be soon to be demolished. Usually they would scout it, find it, invite everybody in for like five days. We'd all sneak in, paint, and then open it up for this illegal exhibition that nobody was in charge of. And they were like hugely successful. Like you would have this meeting point, word would spread via like text message. Everyone would meet in a park, walk to the space, see the work. And so those were like really inspiring. And that's kind of how I, I learned how to paint. From there, I was offered some exhibitions, so I was like... And about um, what year is that? Oh, it's like so... I'm really bad at years, but it's like mm. mid-2000s-ish oh, okay. around then. So I was like, this is really fun, you know? Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it was like a super fun time, and I was like, oh, this is so much fun, and, you know, I'm like really inspired creatively by this scene and by mm-hmm. these people, and I felt like there were some older artists who really took me under their wing. Yeah, and so, amazing. you know... Like I had a sh- some group shows and I was like, and they were like successful because it was, yeah, that time where people were like so into it. Um, so I was like, this is really cool. Like my first exhibition, we sold everything, you know, and like I just painted on junk I found in the street and yeah. like nothing. I think the most expensive thing was like $200, but I was like, oh my God, I've sold everything, you know, this is wow. amazing. And what a, um, feeling. what a feeling. Yeah. And then I think like, 2008 2008 I always forget I think it's 2008 um like and this was a very pivotal point for me um Banksy did a show in London it's a very big exhibition and invited me to paint no way yeah and so I was very much like oh my god I didn't even know he knows who I am like this is amazing and really nice and so I didn't really know if I wanted to even be an artist yeah. full time. Like I'd been dabbling for a few years, you know? And so I went and like, um, did that show. And that was a point that was another like kind of epiphany point where I was like, this is going to be the end of my career. I'm going to go to lunch and I'm going to make this big grandiose statement. Cause uh-huh. I was also kind of grieving for a lover. 
And um, so I painted these gigantic kissing skeletons and I was like, this is going to be the end or the beginning. Right. Like, this is the point. And so I went there, did the, did the work and um, went, actually, I think this is something I want to do full time. And so it was around that, that point that I like made that commitment to go full time. So it became a beginning. Yeah, it became a beginning. So I think I had my first solo show in 2009. Wow. So yeah. this was. So when was the show at Bank City? It's 2008. And, sure. and what show was it? It was called the Cannes Festival. Okay. Yeah, and it was like in Lake Street Tunnel, center of London, and he invited like 45 artists wow. to come, and we painted it out this whole tunnel, and then there was like, you know, the grand opening. Wow. Um, yeah, it was amazing. Like, people lined up for like hours to come in. You know, we were all yeah. like completely blown away. I remember discovering Banksy in like, 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. uh, really early 2000s website that had his work on it. And I would yeah. check it what website daily. Was it? it was his website. Oh, his website, yeah. yeah. I would check it daily to see if he came mm-hmm. out with any more work. Mm. And he had a whole manifesto on it about how, like, you shouldn't try to get famous. I remember that artist. manifesto, yeah. And I read it all the time. Mm-hmm. And he, he wrote it from the stance that he had become famous kind of like I got the impression maybe I read into it too much but he got I got the impression that he's like I got famous and that was like the worst thing I don't want don't don't do that yeah but it's so funny to me thinking of Banksy thinking he was famous in 2003 you know like yeah he was that was he had a website with some hits that was it and now I mean oh, yeah the but yeah that's so crazy that you uh did you meet him well yeah he was there wow while we were painting for sure um yeah. Did he? So like, I mean, did he take any secrecy precautions to try to maintain his secret identity, or no? Or I mean, he was just like, pretty open. It, yeah, I mean, it was just like there's like fifty, you know, fifty to sixty, seventy people all in there at one time. You know what I mean? That like, all saw his face, also saw who he was. I don't know if everybody did, but you know, it's like, I mean, no one's going to blows like within our scene no one's gonna blow somebody's cover out of the water i guess yeah like, i guess street artists are pretty good at the whole secrecy thing yeah that's a good point you know no one's we've all <laughs> come from a background of doing shit illegally so right. no one's gonna be like eh. you know it's so you funny know? i uh, i did street art um in high school and my early years of college as well mm-hmm. oh, and cool. i was so obsessed with the secrecy and i'm not a very secret secretive person yeah that I didn't take any pictures, didn't do any documentation, uh-huh. and it's like this lost period of time in my life. I, I, I like barely remember even what I did. Yeah. And I then found out later, much, much, much later, that a couple of my close friends were doing the exact same thing, <laughs> and we'd seen each other's pieces across town and yeah. had no idea that we were close friends, and yeah. I like regret that so much, not yeah. talking about it, and we would have been like... Because that community, we would have, our work would have been so much oh, better, totally. we would have done bigger pieces. Yeah, but people would, have... you know, yeah, like there was a a guy who made a documentary in Melbourne and I ran into him in his empty building and I was like, are you an undercover cop? I don't know. Yeah, I was and so paranoid. for a long time, no one knew if he was or wasn't. And right. yeah, everybody, everybody had a good, good reason to be paranoid, you know, right. about that, about that stuff. Like and I didn't. I didn't document any of my early work mm-hmm. um, either, and that wasn't even 
because of that, like, I just was so into the ephemeral nature of it. Mm. Like, I just didn't do any. I was like, it was oh. off the grid. Yeah. And so, like, that's like kind of, that's my other, or like another funny Banksy story where the film exit through the gift shop. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, my hands in that film, but like nothing else because, oh, no like, way. he reached out to me. He's like, I really want you to send me some like footage, some documentation because I'm doing this like montage at the beginning of the film and I want to uh-huh. put you in it. And I was like, I don't have anything. I was like, I have some like low res stills, you know? And so he was like, I really want to put you in. And I was like, I'm sorry. Like I've got nothing because I was like the ephemeral nature of street art. Right. And so my hands in the film, but not my work. And I'm like the only artist who has a credit in that film that doesn't have any work. It's just my hands spray painting pink. (laughs) (laughs) Well, man, what a claim. Yeah. Except for it's like everybody else has like their work in it, but not me. I'm like, that's a lesson in documentation. After that, I was like, I really should document. It's so hard to do though. It's so hard to do. Yeah. It's like when you're in that mode of creating, documenting is a different mode. Totally. That's why it's always like, you know, now I have people who video and photo for me. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm, I'm too happy with like, I've done it. It's done next, you know? Yeah. And while I'm in the middle of it, I'm not going to be actually like, taking process bits. Yeah, anything. totally. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to see where this is going. Yeah, I want to see what I'm making. Yeah. Not like, yeah, it's funny. What an amazing part of history to be a part of, though. Because, I mean, in my mind, I mean, when I started doing the street art, it was really low level. I was just a kid, just like with an impulse to create that I didn't have good control of. And the difference between graffiti and street art wasn't really a defined mm-hmm. difference at that point. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, people spent years arguing about it and still do. Right. You know? I mean, but I feel like Exit Through the Gift Shop, when that came out, I feel like that was when, I don't know, I'm not an expert on this area but i feel like that was like okay mainstream there's a now yeah. forever differentiation between the two yeah people started to like get it and you're like and you're a part of that yeah your yeah, hands yeah, yeah. are a part of that it's my amazing. hands are a part of it yeah and yeah no i mean like it's you know it's a it's been and is a really fun scene to be a part of yeah, yeah. incredible yeah incredible now you guys are being hired by legitimate companies yeah like adobe and <laughs> google and yeah yeah Totally. Yeah, I mean, like, that was the appeal of working in a gallery space or on a commission for me because I'd only ever, like, worked on the street, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, like, I would make my – I had a studio space to make my stencils and, like, store stuff and things like that, but I wasn't – didn't even really occur to me to produce something that could be, like – you know, the first inkling I had of that kind of happening was one of the very first like empty shows that I did and I painted on blinds and mm. people took the blinds. And one of my friends actually has one. We didn't know it. We didn't know each other at the time, but like people would remove work. Um, and so we were okay. like, oh, wait, people actually want to have this, you know. Yeah, so and, you could um, potentially sell it. Yeah. But yeah. like I was like, I took a job in an art store to learn about art supplies. I was like, okay, do I go back to art school or do I maybe I take a job in an art shop so that I can learn about art supplies because I was too intimidated to go into an art shop when I was doing street stuff. Like I just would buy stuff from the hardware store because I was like, I I don't know about any of this stuff. I'm like way too shy and nervous about buying like real paint. Dude, that's a real problem. That's a real problem. I I mean, that's that held me back when I was a kid too. Like even doing the street art, like I was doing it alone, pretending to not be doing it because I didn't want to get caught by people that were really doing it in my mind. (laughs) <laughs> like the people that were legit mm. and be embarrassed by their legitimacy as yeah. I'm just like 
scratching out colors on a wall and doing like wee pasting and all that stuff. That's generally what I did. Yeah, and everyone's just like big dorks, really. Yeah, and it turns out, yeah, we're all... Yeah, if we could get outside of ourselves and get rid of that imposter syndrome, we could have actually done more. Oh, yeah. We could have done a lot more. Yeah, 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 because... And that's why I also gravitated towards the like street and graffiti scene, I guess, because as somebody who'd always been creative and um, always loved art, like... I loved that that scene was like this huge fuck you to the high art gallery yeah. system. Really was like like fuck you. I don't need you for people to see my work. I'm yeah. just gonna go out there and paint it, and people see it. You your you old school gatekeepers can't. We've opened a new gate now. Right. And then also like self organized shows and the fact that people I think the response to it was so strong because the general public also felt like that like excluded from that world of yeah. like feeling intimidated to go into a gallery to look at work because someone's going to be rude to them because they're not fed by the $10,000 painting. Also feeling like they don't understand, you know, museum work. Mm -hmm. So they don't go there or whatever. And it's like, yeah, work on the street. You know, you kind of break down those barriers because you have to, if you want the everyday, everyday person to notice the work, you have to make it approachable. Yeah. And it's, it's a really, that was a really exciting thing watching. It's actually happening in streetwear right now. Like uh, the street level taking over the high level. Yeah. Uh, it's it super fun to watch. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. and what happened with art. Now it's uh, all these streetwear brands like Virgil Abloh is now creative director at Louis Vuitton. Ooh. Like Ooh. that's not supposed to happen historically. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. I love when it does happen. I have mixed feelings actually because then it's like, oh no, it's been co opted by all these snobs have co opted the, the real shit. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, like, yeah, I've always, like, I guess, like, one of the kind of codes that I've always lived by was this, like, quote that I have never been able to find the source of because I just, I think I read it at university. I didn't read it at Zine. And it was, like, those who move between worlds wield the most power. Oh, interesting. Yes. And so... I've kind of, it's always been sort of a code for, for my life and yeah. my work because if you can if you can move between all worlds it's and it's not even power as in like top down power it's like kind of like influence on mm -hmm. on things and also you know gaining knowledge and so if you can move between all the different worlds I think it's more powerful than setting yourself apart yeah so I I'm in the same way I don't want things to get co opted but also maybe that is showing the inherent power of Thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If it can translate to different ideologies and different tribes yeah. and groups, there's something maybe universal or something yeah, there's a message that there goes that, through, yeah. and, and it, you know, like yeah, like I don't really believe in you know these ideas of like oh well that thing's sold out or like now that it's mainstream it's not cool or whatever. Right. It's like no, no, maybe it's oh, just such a damaging trying to get to a different place, and that's a great thing. Totally, and it's such a damaging thing to the artistic world is the idea of selling out. And oh yeah. Um, reaching commercial success being an antithesis of integrity. Like, I mean, maybe that can sometimes exist, but yeah, anybody it's distracting from it's, work down. it's just a really strong, powerful social pressure that mm -hmm. is a distraction from creating good work, not a a help exactly. to creating the good work. Exactly. And also that whole ideology of like not trying too hard. I hate that. Like the I like oh, yeah. particularly prevalent in like music. Like all my musician friends are growing up particularly were always trying to pretend like they weren't putting much effort into their work because that's not punk. 
<laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And I totally. hated that attitude. Like, no, like your guys are craftsmen. Like, own that. You don't, I mean, you don't think like the Ramones are like yeah. practicing or yeah. like refining their yeah their musicianship. Like, come on, exactly. Get over, get over yourself. <laughs> get over yourself. Yeah, well, get over the hard. idea of who you should be. Yeah, celebrate hard work. Why, mm-hmm. why the hell not? Yeah. Why the hell not? Yeah, definitely. So to go back to your work, what do you? Need? I'm curious as to where you were at when you started and maybe even where you're where you were at artistically, conceptually, when you're doing the Banksy stuff versus what you're doing now and how that's changed. So like three, a little three part question there. Yeah, I mean just where you've been, where you're going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like what are the ideas that you're playing with? What were you trying to do? When I like first started, so I did quite, I do like, because I kind of come from like some a social activism perspective, mm. like my early work was pretty political. Mm. Um, like I created this piece that's like in the National Gallery of Australia collection that was oh, like wow. a row of like riot cops and said, welcome to Australia, because it, that was about like um the detention centers and the refugee crisis mm. which unfortunately is still an issue today yeah, and yeah, was way back then um and i was also quite aware of like the graffiti scene is you know as everybody mm. knows pretty male dominated so i was in my early work i was quite interested in like gender neutral- neutrality mm. in my work and what do you mean by that like not doing like within traditional graffiti like the imagery of women is like really hypersexualized. oh yeah, yeah for instance or like you know i didn't want to make work that was like girly right. um because i wanted it to be able to reach across genders and so the the artists could be perceived as gender neutral yeah like yeah. people i loved really early on that people didn't know if i was a man or a woman yeah. um you know i painted both men and women in my work um you know I was kind of conscious of that stuff but I was like you know yeah but also still playing around with like ideas of freedom kind of like surrealist dreamy kind of imagery as well um which is something that still stretches across from that's a similarity that I started with that I'm still or a theme that I still is in my work now but visually that was you know yeah, and then I guess from there, like, um, I well, I guess I just, like, as I went, like, I refined my ideas and things that I wanted to work on. Yeah, found you your know? voice, essentially. Yeah, yeah, like, narrowed, I'm, I'm, narrowed, like, kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like, stripped away, mm-hmm. like, chipped away, like, well, I played around with that and don't want to do that. Right. You know, I was like, I don't really want to be like, um, is it Barbara Kruger? Like, I don't want to be like a, a political artist. Like, yeah. I think politics and change and issues are really important. But if I can, like, not be pigeonholed, I'd rather not be because I right. think it's a more powerful position. Um, so, you know, I became interested in ideas of, like, you know, making work that everybody can you know get like respond to like i love it if i make something and like a five-year-old's into it and like an 80 year old you know yeah get something then i'm like for me that's that's a marker of success yeah, that, you, that's you what know? appealed to me about levi's when i was offered the job at levi's is that 
yeah, it's like, well, this is one of the few brands in the world that my dad, yeah, me, and my friends that are much cooler than me <laughs> all subscribe to. So I'm yeah. like, what, what is it about that, that universal resonance? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so it's I, powerful. Yeah, finding, finding the, the personal in the universal. Yeah, that's Ooh, always like been that. that's been a, a like a theme for me for a mm. really long time. Is looking for that thing that everybody has. Yeah, it's universal and personal at the same time. Um, yeah. So I mean, yeah. your your piece with the Banksy show. Was, Do you want me to answer the third part? Or what was the third part? What um, I'm making now. Concerning. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's actually I'm gonna follow up. On oh, this okay. <laughs> you like. Uh, I mean, you're doing like skeletons kissing, which was, I mean, sounds very representational mm-hmm. and like literal and everything else. But now, I mean, your stuff is pretty abstract. Some of it, some mm-hmm. of it, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I kind of whittled, whittled, whittled and uh-huh. really kind of started to hone in on like something that I love about the street art scene is like destruction and creation, uh-huh. like those two yeah. dichotomies. And then like life and death. And and also how that plays into work in the public realm. So the skeletons kind of tie into that, and the way that the personal and the universal is kind of like this interconnectionness of everything. So then I would also like think about how to represent that in my work. Mm. And so that was when I started using like the shapes, mm-hmm. the like diamonds, as like representative of particles that make up all matter. So I would like link figurative stuff that I was making with that. Right. And in the early work of the piece that I did for Banks for Banksy's Cannes Festival, I did these like hands that these leaves that were essentially like hands. Um, so that was like an early representation of that idea. And so then and then like yeah, um I kept refining it down and then yeah the shapes in some ways like became their own thing and really took over on a larger scale. And that's so now I feel like in some ways I have this duality between this like abstraction and figurative work that comes together and also exists apart. And how comfortable are you with this? I mean, how much do you feel like this is actually your voice coming through or are you still whittling? No, no, I feel like pretty comfortable with my voice now and I guess like comfortable enough that I can also do sound yeah. and installation, public art, paintings, you know? Yeah. And that I understand when my how my voice comes across in all these different spheres, which is a really fun point to be at where I can break, you know, I can like I've whittled down and now I can like not dilute that, but like apply that to Express, different yeah. formats. You have a voice and now you can find different ways of expressing it. Yeah, different music. instruments to play it through maybe. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, and which I mentioned before, I don't know if it's going to make the cut when mm. I edit this, but I did mention before like it does seem totally logical that you would, you would evolve to soundscapes looking at your work. Your, your yeah. 2D medium seems to be musical and sound-based. Yeah, yeah. It's already. A, yeah, it's so a super, super big inspiration for me because it's like my work is always like a collage. It's a collage of yeah. ideas. It's a collage of elements. Like I work with my own photography, but then I'll use found imagery as well if I need to. Oh. And so my sound stuff is the same. I'm like recording sound samples and grabbing them from here, there, and everywhere and sticking them together and overlapping them. And yeah. Sound collages. Yeah, that's kind of what they are. Interesting. Know? Yeah. Now, you mentioned gender neutrality earlier. Mm-hmm. So, how do you, where do you feel like you are currently? Are you, are you leaning into feminine? Or are you still trying to be gender neutral? Well, I guess, like, I mean, I've always 
like androgyny has always been quite inspirational to me. Like even when I was mm. in high school working on photos, I would always work with really like androgynous models. Um, so that's like an ongoing interest. But I guess like I also like I came to a point where I was like I am a woman and mm-hmm. I want to speak from that perspective, but in a way that isn't like uh, sort of overly feminized or overly sexualized voice like other women always comment to me about like my figurative work and they're always like oh it's like really represents i feel like it's it's not like this idealized like i always feel like i try to make people look beautiful you know and then they're like oh you know but it looks really real and everything and which is always like relieving to me because i don't want to make it too someone look too perfect you know but i'm attracted by beauty yeah yeah but i try to make you know, a, a sense of realness in that work. And that's such a, what a pursuit. It's really, t- that's a really challenging thing. It, it is. And also I want it to be powerful. Like I mm-hmm. want, I want like women to look at my figurative work and feel empowered by it. I want people to appreciate the beauty without being sidetracked by the beauty. Yeah. I don't want it to be just like, oh, it's a picture of a pretty girl. Right. Because it's so boring and our totally. world is like full of like this vacuous imagery of pretty women <laughs> that has no meaning behind it. And yeah. that's like not what I want to do. Yeah. It's so that resonates with me so hard because I know Maria was even trying to show you some of the stuff that I, I did when I sketched her. And I was, I'm on a journey with that of yeah. trying to get rid of these like symbols that I've been taught hundred percent, yeah. growing up of like, oh, this is how things should look, or this is the yeah. appeal, or this is like, yeah. you know, there's an interpretation or a lens that um, I've been given as part of my, my training, upbringing, and my exposure to culture and everything else to interpret yeah. people, and especially women, in a certain way mm-hmm. that is vapid and uninteresting. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm getting back into figure drawing as a way to try to kind of get away from that but it's it's very difficult and i'm just i'm just starting even just journey. being aware of it yeah. is like great yeah and i think yeah. i mean i think we all are that's i mean like, that's me still again, even in the creation of the work you know yeah. like being aware of it while you create something and nothing's changed i'm still responding to the culture that i'm in you know mm-hmm. but that's the culture that we're currently in is that yeah. i'm surrounded by these artists that are pushing me away from that and that's really good that's just where the progress is coming in now yeah there's some brilliant people i'm uh that are particularly good at that stuff, and I'm I'm still trying to get them on the on the podcast. But these women artists that just yeah, uh, con- are constantly creating work that opens my eyes to like the real nature of the feminine, yeah, and interpret it in just beautiful ways that I would never be able to. And that's yeah. what, that's what makes art amazing. Yeah, definitely. So what a, what are your plans for these soundscapes? <sighs> Fit them into my life. Um, yeah. I just want to keep making them. Um, you know, I kind of have, it's like one of the projects on the table. Have you put any out there yet? I have some on SoundCloud and on my website. Yeah. That I've made. And, um, yeah, doing the one that I did here in Tulum, I was like, okay, maybe they exist like a sound mapping of, of a place. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a constraint that I've sort of given myself with them. Geographical constraint. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. Like the first one I did was really broad. You know, and then I was like, no, you know, I think for any creative person, giving yourself restraints in this weird way equals more freedom. Yeah. Like being true. like, here, there's so many, you know, make this thing with four colors instead of the whole, all the colors yeah. of the rainbow. So, yeah, I want to, I really like the, I, 
and they're quite difficult, the soundscapes, because I think that they're, I want them to be experienced in a certain way. So it's about also finding the right places to present them. Like the one that I did here in Tulum that was in the like, you know, underground pool that A had like a very good um, acoustics, was also like had a pool of water in it, you know, we filled it with candles and flowers and stuff like this. So I want people to... the pool with... Well, there was already a pool in there. Okay. So there's a pool in there and you go down these stairs and it's like a tiled room um, in Casamalca. And so I had it in there and so we would run it every night of the conference. People could come in and just experience it. Amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like I can... Yeah, I would like to continue to find amazing places to present them occasionally. Yeah. 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 So on the Tulum subject, how long have you been in Tulum? I've been coming here for like about the entire time I lived in New York. When I started living in New York, I was coming here regularly and I've been here for a year. Okay. Minus the five months I was on the road last year. (laughs) (laughs) And how has that affected your work? Being Being here? Yeah. Um, I feel like I've like, like I have the, the space like on a kind of like psychic level to like have more of an open like a yeah just more psychic space to like think about my work yeah um there's also a lot of really great creative people here people who are into the arts Mm -hmm. which is it's always nice to be in a community where that's supported right um yeah and like mythology is like one of the things that I'm interested in my work so like learning about local Mayan mythology and Mm. like those you know stories I'm interested in like comparative mythology like stuff that is like again like kind of coming back to the personal and the universal like stories that are told in like different cultures that all have similar themes yeah you know very much in that yeah like when I started doing the like the flying people like which is like people kind of which I'm well known for is like people turning into birds flying. Uh-huh. That was like something when I was like, oh, this is compl- like this resonates so strongly with people. Why? And starting to investigate because all the myths across the world that have that like, have a narrative of yeah, people a narrative turning into of birds. people turning into birds, falling, oh, flying. So what kind of cultures? Ah, like you know, the Icarus is a very the famous Icarus, one. Yeah. There's like a I don't know what what it is. A lot of the temples here have this like. Like what is it called? With like the diving god, and it's like this this figure falling, and it will be over the door of a temple. Um, Anything Aborigine, you know? Since you're Australian, I'm trying to think. There's Not so the ma- nothing is coming to me off the top of the off the top of my head, but there is so many different cultures and different cultural yeah. stories, and That's a lot of it's um, only verbal. So mm-hmm. there's not a lot of written mythology to imp- there is some but I can't yeah, wait I'm sure for there that. is like yeah I can't wait for that theme to keep popping up for me now now that you've mentioned it every time somebody in some culture I hear about people becoming birds it's gonna be yeah tick. yeah 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 send it to me yeah, <laughs> I'll be like hey I just found out about another one yeah, yeah I love those points so the, yeah. the cross-cultural points that's why I did uh, this fasting thing I did earlier this week mm-hmm. it was just because that's another universal practice yeah Every culture has an experience. Every religion uses it to reach mm-hmm. a, reach a nat- uh, yeah. natural altered state. And for me, it's kind of a live performance art of being like, well, I can participate in these cultures. And mm-hmm. by, I mean, and there's got to be something to it. Of course. 
Yeah. If everyone's done it, <laughs> every culture. Exactly. Culture. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that for me, like that character, you know, the, that that like narrative and myth is something that you know is tied into our ideas of freedom and transformation. Yeah. And you know, if I can paint something in the street that instantly makes somebody feel more free, mm -hmm. even however that affects their life, to like you know, for them to feel that and then apply that in whatever is their narrative that's going on is a great thing. The you universal know? resonance, is that what we called it earlier in this conversation? Just like the, the yeah. thing that hits all people yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, that's, yeah. We, there is, if it's all cultures, there's, yeah, makes total sense of, mm -hmm. there seems to be a freedom impulse that we translate to turning into birds. Totally, yeah, I mean, they fly around in the sky, yeah. of course, you know, and I mean, yeah, like, yeah, I love that. Like one of oh, okay, okay, this is a good question for this podcast. Okay. One of my questions that I love to ask people okay. is like, um, if you had to choose um, either like gills or wings, what would it be? Oh damn. Yeah. <laughs> that is really hard, and they're both yeah, they're both symbols of freedom. Yes. And that's what both, both reason both of those things appeal to me. Yeah. I love diving. Yeah. Um, both it's a scuba hard and free diving. Oh, yeah, the idea of flying. Mm -hmm. I used to do a lot of lucid dreaming um, oh, when nice. I was younger, and that was always the objective. Is every time I, totally. I became lucid in my dream, I wanted to fly. Yeah. So it's I interesting. Tried lucid dreaming and like diving. Yeah, I never oh, dove in my lucid dreams. I've never done that either. But I dived yeah. more in real life, and I'm not, you know, yeah. I don't have a pilot's license in real life. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but that more could probably come down to the technical demands of becoming a pilot versus becoming a yeah scuba diver, but. It's really, I, it's an interesting question. Like, why do you, why do you like asking that? I don't know. I just always have, like, it's, I've asked people this question probably since I was like very, I don't know, maybe I was like a teenager or something. And what's your answer? I've like, mostly it's flight. Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally I think about the gills. I just like, you know, I used to have like, yeah, I used to have a lot of flying dreams as a child. Yeah. Maybe that's also why I work in. I just a flight. I used to have like a reoccurring dream all the time of like a one particular point in my school playground where I would like fly. Mm. Sometimes I would like tie a leg to my rope to my tie a rope to my leg and then to like this little there was this like pole that was mm -hmm. like just this pole that stuck up in the playground that had nothing to do with anything. And that was the point that I would go to and like take off from. Sometimes I would tie like, myself to it. But leash yourself to it. Yeah. yeah as a as a kid, like I would go to school the next day after having these dreams and go over to that pole and just stand there and like think yeah. about it. Uh, <laughs> I'd probably look like a total weirdo. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would choose I would choose flight. I think I'd get I don't know. So it's like the ocean's so cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you don't have body temperature moderation. Yeah, and then there's all the sharks and stuff. Like yeah, I don't the know. The worlds you could see. I mean, the thing is, everyone's seen the sky. We've all been in Yeah, but not like, you know, also like getting from A to B would be so easy. You just yeah, fly transportation there. and practicality. Like, I mean, I just love to like think about all the elements to that question. Yeah. I mean, but true exploration, if you really wanted to see Yeah, but the underwater, the see, yeah, is, underwater is, is amazing. Underwater. Yeah. yeah like but rings. then there's also extreme limits to that, like, you can go, what, like 200 meters down until you go blind? Exactly. Until you can't I see mean, shit. I like can bring, if you have gills, you can you bring flashlights. You have gills, lights. yeah, yeah, but it does get dark. Would our eyesight suggest? No, I mean, uh, there's a certain point where there's no light. Yeah, it exactly. It does not exist. And I am 0% interested in exploring that part. Oh, me too. Because that sounds That's just terrifying. like giant squids down there that are going to for yeah. sure. Thassophobia for sure at that point. Yeah. But there's no height 
that I would be, I think, scared of yeah. if I was flying. Yeah, that's why I would be flying. Yeah, something yeah. about it. But then, you yeah. know, also gills are easily hidden. Perhaps wings are not like you. Oh, well, have there's to anatomy. Walk. We How didn't do you talk put about on that. a backpack? So we're not just Superman. You have wings? Yeah, like if you chew, you chew, yeah, something. Like wings or gills? Yeah, wings or gills. It's like, it's a tricky one. There's a lot of like, yeah, there's a lot of levels to that. I don't know though. Who knows what our gills would be like? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, does gills preclude you being able to breathe normally above water? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because I wouldn't, I'm not saying that your wings would take away your arms. Right. So, it's an add-on. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good question. I have a question that I want to ask people more often. I'm trying not to have formulate questions on this podcast, but who actually knows what this podcast is going to be about or how it's going to be involving. But yeah. one thing I'm thinking about and I'm curious your feedback on is the role of ego in work, mm-hmm. whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, the work, whether it should be cultivated or eliminated. And we're in Tulum, yeah. which is a a spiritual place on its own and there's a lot of like wellness uh yoga and all that stuff happening here yeah that seems to be focused on you but yeah i'm curious if you have an opinion on that do you think you i mean just in person does your does your ego help your work or does it get in your way i i don't know i I mean i think it's hard it's a hard question to answer inside your own ego person Requires um, self-awareness. I think there, I mean, it's a, the ego is useful. You can't live without the ego. Right. You know, it's just like, it's keeping things in balance, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, um, yeah. Like, I guess, you know, the ego makes you sign of work instead of never signing your work. Yeah. Um, or doing the And also the makes place. you want to have a relationship with your audience and define mm-hmm. your voice. But then I think also, like, you have to, you know, like, especially within, like, public street art or work that's in the public realm, you, you have to let go of that. Like, once it's out there, you know, like, very early on in my career, people are always like, but, like, how do you cope with, like, someone painting over your work or, like, some other artist? Right. And I'd be like, I really don't care. Like, once it's done, it's done. Like, right. it's not, it's, it is mine, but it's not mine anymore. It's, like, always interesting how people take ownership of it. You know, like mm-hmm. I have a piece in Melbourne that's been there for quite a long time. And it, really? when I went back recently and I repainted every two years because it's in an area where the, it, the wall gets really dirty and it gets tagged. And and I was there repainting it recently and people were walking past like it saying, no, don't take away the rainbow and like all this stuff. And I was like, it's, it's okay. I'm the artist. Like, and I'm going to make it again. Mm-hmm. But I was, it was really nice to see how this, like everybody had this ownership over it that yeah. wasn't anything to do with me right. as a person because I didn't even know who I was, you know, and I was like, that's cool. I was like, you know, you guys have, it's yours now, you know? Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah. And become part of a larger tribe or a larger... Yeah, and like creative ideas, you know, like you're pulling from the collective consciousness mm-hmm. the collective a lot of the time, like... You don't own everything. Like everyone talks about, well, everything's being done, all of that stuff. That's kind of like the collective consciousness. It's right. like doesn't mean that you shouldn't do stuff, but you mm-hmm. can't be upset like if somebody else, try that you know, other people have painted people turning into birds or whatever. I'm not going to be like, oh, that was my idea. Like right. that would be my ego out of control. Right. You know. But then it, it takes 
a certain level of ego and audacity to want to create something. I think so. I mean, I, I think so. But then I think a lot of artists, especially maybe artists who are self-taught or come from like a lowbrow, not high art background, it's also kind of like a compulsion as yeah, well. Yeah, true. And also we're kind of, you know, we're like misfits mm-hmm. or weirdos who don't function very well in regular life. So it's also like I've always felt a lot like I don't really have any other option. Yeah. Like I'm not really good working for other people. Yeah. I probably could do a lot of things if I put my mind to it, but like art is the thing that I do the best. Yeah, it's that's actually you a good know? point. Like uh, it sounds egotistical to create something new, but it's often yeah the last resort. Yeah, like <laughs> I mean, we want to talk artists. about egotistical people, architects. Right. I'm like, dudes, you guys build gigantic. You have the audacity to build yeah. huge, often phallic. buildings in the world like that takes ego that takes a lot more ego than being an artist but a lot of times when i talk to artists it turns out that they have a similar story of like well they tried to get a job yeah a real job yeah and they couldn't yeah and the only thing that they felt confident in or felt comfortable doing was creating something yeah and that's that doesn't sound egotistical it actually sounds like a surrender yeah yeah definitely definitely and i think that Um, you know, I feel like I'm fortunate to be living in a time and a place, um, that people can afford art, Mm -hmm. like a lot of people, people can support my work. People resonate with my work. There's a lot of artists who spend a lifetime making work and then die and everybody discovers them, discovers them or or whatever. And, you know, you have to also be realistic in like, you know, there's been plenty of times where I'm like, maybe I should take a second job or maybe Mm. I should have had a second job because, you know, also when you're making work and it's like you're living, it can get compromised and it's a tricky balance. Yeah, because now you're like, "Uh, I need to pay bills, so I need to commercialize this shit fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or make the thing that people want instead of maybe where I'm at. Totally. If you're you're good or whatever, you kind of always got to be like ahead of the curve and your audience is catching up and, you know... Like That's juggling that stuff is like you know, tricky. Yeah, that is a huge battle. I always say with my like even my I mean my whole job is to be commercial. Yeah. As a designer, I'm not an artist, I'm yeah. a designer. Yeah. Um and commerciality is the art form. It's like how do you create something that mm-hmm. resonates with people that feels somewhat original, gets yeah. the message across, gets the artist and the authorship of the artist out of the way. Yeah. Um and that's tough. Yeah, and it's very, you know, it's it's very similar. As mm. there's a lot of similarities between like design mm-hmm. and you know, and yeah, like on the art. spectrum of commerciality versus expression, mm-hmm. pure purity of expression. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the only the only time, and I think it's a complex question, the ego question. Yeah. Um, the time that I see ego as being the most damaging is when artists or designers or creatives, writers, comedians, or whatever, is when they allow their ego to tell them that they are good yeah definitely that they are they have they have arrived creatively Uh oh yeah that's like the death like bell yeah as soon as you you think you're good yeah you're you're, you're screwed in a way like i mean you need to recognize your talent and recognize the value of your work yeah but yeah as soon as you think you're like kind of like too good for something Mm -hmm. or too good for the work too good to work hard yeah like too good to work hard or that everything you do is perfect or something 
you know? Like, I remember doing like, one of my, I think it was my, like, yeah, one of my early exhibitions, and I found them very difficult. Like, my, it took me quite a few shows before I could even be in the gallery because I have terrible, like, I pretty have anxiety, and I was not very good at, like, I would stand outside the gallery for the opening night and not be in the space, and my art director and, like, you know, the gallery director would be, like, trying to coax me in. Artists in that presence. Yeah, like, come in, come in. I was like, oh, I can't, you know. Yeah. And, like, I'm, I'm fine with it now, but it was really difficult for me. And then people giving me compliments, I kind of – it wasn't that I hated it, but I just was really, really worried that it wasn't real. Right. I was like – Imposter syndrome, man. Yeah, I was like, also, like, tell me something – give me something critical. And I guess sure. I was like, because I hadn't come from an art school background and critiquing and stuff, I was like, but there must be something wrong with this. Right. Um, because how do I improve if I can't see the flaws? You know, and it's like if you think you're so good that you can't. Once you think you're so good, you're not going to improve. You're stuck. Right. Because you're like, oh, everything I do is perfect. Like, how are you going to get any better? Yeah, and that's the, that's the shitty thing about being an artist is that as soon as you create a work that is leveled up from your previous work, you can see the next step of mm -hmm. development that you need to take. Yeah. And then you need to take that and you're not going to be happy with yourself until you get yeah. there. And so yes. it's just a never-ending cycle of being dissatisfied. Oh, yeah. But that dissatisfaction is, is fuel and... And it's satisfying it's, to be yeah. dissatisfied. Because you've yeah. got drive and you've got to go, you've got a path. It's, it's so addicting and it's so hard to explain to somebody who does not experience it, mm -hmm. who's outside of that. But that cycle is is life. It's a miserable, <laughs> dissatisfying, yeah. but fulfilling and satisfying life at the same time. It's exactly. an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, totally. How do you interact? I mean, do you have do you have haters online? Do I have haters? Uh, probably. You don't I have, don't you, know. You, well, if you're not confronted with them that often, then it's not an issue for you. Yeah, no, nobody. Yeah, no, not not that I not that I know of. So that's fine. And like, I mean, I've you know, like, definitely, I've had haters. Mm. And I remember, like, my first exhibition that I did. You know, my first solo show, like, somebody graffitied in the gallery toilets that I was like a sellout, oh, yeah. and I was like quite shocked. Oh, yeah. And I was like, you know, and, and but I mean, whatever, it provided me with food for thought. And I was like, I fucking deserve to be able to pay my rent and, and buy food to eat. And mm -hmm. this is what I'm good at. And fuck you. Yeah. Like, you know, you're still in this gallery writing the graffiti. Yeah, you came to you the came gallery. To my show. And you brought a can. Yeah, I was like, mm -hmm. it was marker pen. But, you know, oh, I'm marker. just like, you know, you want me to stay in this bubble that makes you happy of me being this like illegal miserable. street artist that you can admire or like whatever that doesn't and sound like a happy person that sounds like a miserable exactly. person exactly also I don't live to, to fulfill your ideal of me I live to fulfill my ideal of who I should be you know and that I think is really important to, yeah. as an artist to like you know make what you want to see in the world like be true to your own voice be true to yourself hold yourself up to a high standard and not what other people expect you to be right. you know like, like being a street artist or whatever you know, I, like people always want to put you in something that they can talk about or whatever or understand. And like I always, you know, when people ask me about my work, I'm like, that was my background. Like I still do public work. I still do murals. But I, you know, I, I got to a point where I was like, I the work that I want to create, I can't do illegally. Really? Because Why not? it's big. Like uh. I want to make physically, I want to make things that take time, mm. that are that are bigger than a tiny stencil. Like I've moved on from that stuff. Right. That's what my roots, though, and that will always come through in my work, in the way I work, and what I talk about. But I'm not going to stay in that 
one spot, you progress right. and you change and and you're allowed to. I can write a book if I want to. Yeah. I don't always have to be a painter. But you know, it's like I think that's important to know to be yeah, aware of. Your voice, you find these instruments to express it. And exactly. that's we talked about a little bit with your media degree that mm-hmm. you didn't want to be somebody that talked about interesting work. You wanted to be somebody that did the interesting work. Yeah. And um I had the same thing. I was actually doing a journalist major and yeah. I had the same kind of impulse. I'm like, do I really want to just write about other people doing yeah. cool things or do I want to be making it was broadcast journalism too, so it was you know, I toyed being a documentary filmmaker or writing for magazines mm-hmm. or whatever, but like the cool thing about podcasting is it lowered the bar barrier of entry to those things that I could be somebody that is gathering these stories from people like you. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily exclude me from being somebody who could actually 100%. do those things. Yes. And we'll see how that goes. But yeah. <laughs> but that is kind of the exciting thing is now we can kind of do more. Do more and do both. And yeah. they can each be We just sleep less. We sleep less. <laughs> and they all just they're all just being individual expressions of that voice that we're exactly. discovering yeah. constantly. Yeah. But um Definitely. Yeah, really cool to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time off in my Tulum experience. I'm glad I met you. I'm glad I got to be on your podcast. Yeah, and you know what? Something else that you've helped me with, what I really was excited about with Tulum, I was very nervous to come to Tulum for some reason. was not really planning on it. I kind of just ended up here, but... That's what Tulum does. That's what Tulum does. <laughs> How Tulum. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason I was nervous is because the, the exported aesthetic of Tulum on yes. social media and everything oh, else... Oh, it's so different. It's very reality. redundant, very repetitive, very yeah. same one note over and over again. Mm-hmm. And to the point where, you know, the artist's a repulsion of cliche just like was kind of keeping me away. Oh, totally. I mean, I felt the same way uh, about Burning Man. Yeah, like the, same, same the thing. The external imagery of what it is is nothing about like what the it's actually it was. like. Like Tulum is really I've real. I've told so many people that. That like the outward expression of of it on like Instagram is like this idealized perfection that it is not. Yeah, and is really underselling. Yeah. The. The realness. The realness. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's so many things that I've done in the last year that actually follow that same pattern. That things that I was discouraged from doing because of people's because the one note nature of the export and what actually made it to me being unappealing or. Yeah a certain kind of cliche that being one thing and then other people snarking on it and validating my initial perception would have kept me away from yeah like burning man i would i would never gone to burning man if i listened to that snark and let that dictate what i was going to do or tulum Mm -hmm. or uh, some of these trips i've gone on with you know friends that are social media stars or whatever yeah uh but I'm so grateful that something got me past that snark. Yes. So that I actually came and experienced it. Maybe like, you know, it's like just as you were saying that, I was thinking like we should know better having like right. a background in journalism because I think we live in this time of one note journalism. Oh, right. Like, I mean, for fuck's sake, we all use Google. We yeah. use one search engine. We get the same results. Like, yeah. And that one note is coming out for a lot of different themes and perspectives and all you really do is have to dig a little bit deeper to mm-hmm. get a bit more of a truth to something. Right. And also just listen to your instincts and go totally. where you want. And Yeah, the people that I've met yeah. here have been so not cliche to Illuminati yeah. people. Their work has been, the creative people I met, their work has been buried. 
um, the people that I've met, their backgrounds are beautifully varied and to the point where it's really helping me escape my San Francisco bubble and realize how one note that town can be. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, in just a week of being here, my, my, my world has expanded so much. And you don't, you don't get that impression from the outside yeah. of this area. Yeah. But it's an incredibly powerful area. It is, it is. And I mean, there's a very like old like Mayan myth. Mm-hmm. That is about like this area being this place that people from all over the world are drawn to. Yeah, it's also tied into the end of the world when all the people come from all around the world. It's like the end point of oh, times. Wow. So to so this area, yeah, Tulum in particular. Oh wow, yeah. So, so that's what's bringing all these rich white Instagram influencers. Well, you know, in amongst all the other people, you mm-hmm. know, right? It's just there is something here that draws people from everywhere, yeah, and so it becomes an amazing people? mixture. Of the Instagram, yeah, there's like so few of those people comparatively, as far as a oh sampling. yeah, compared to the photos that exist, yes, yeah, and that's why they're the, they're the loud minority, yeah, and yeah. they're here, they're and you totally, see them, they're totally here. You see them on the beach doing their photo shoots and stuff <laughs> right. like that, like they're they're there, but they're not. They're a low percentage. Yeah, they're a low percentage. Yeah, they probably are like whatever four percent, but they give out forty percent of the content. All of it. Yeah, and the and another forty percent is just like beautiful nature shots yeah seriously it's, yeah, 10% so DJ. it's the same thing with burning man like the the burners yeah. that are very stereotypical burners wearing like yeah. you know rain deer horns and snow goggles out yeah. on the beach like those and they have like, platform boots yeah those are there's a, a small percentage yeah yeah and i've i've had to say that to like friends like it's not like that like yeah. don't be don't buy the lie yeah you know? i mean that's what got me there is that when i kind of got an impression of what Burning Man was and I had a very negative impression of what it was. Mm. But then when I moved to San Francisco, I started meeting a lot of people that went and people yeah. that I respected. And you're like, wait, you're awesome. And they're like, no, you have to go. And yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? It, yeah. On one hand, it looks ridiculous and I hate it. Yeah. But I like you and yeah. you want me so to go. So hang on a second. Yeah, what, what's where's... wrong here? Do, my, do I not like you? Or is my perception of something twist, incorrect, is yeah. like incorrect? Yeah. And, and I always think like, I'm just always of the opinion that you can't have an opinion about something unless you've experienced it. Oh, yeah. I don't want to hear about you hating on something you've never done. Oh, and I'd be overjoyed. I'd be just as, I would be just as pleased if I went and I hated it as if I liked it. I'd be like, oh, cool. Give me some more shit to hate. Yeah, you got, you know, you you have a legitimacy behind your opinion instead of it being vacuous. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think the overall message and the very Tulum message is just say yes, experience it. Yeah. Um, before you come to a conclusion or an opinion. Exactly. And yeah, uh, yeah I'm so I'm so glad that I came and I'm so glad I met you. Likewise. And and all our now mutual friends yes. who are an amazing group of people and I they can't are. wait to move here permanently and yep. become a part of it. Do it. <laughs> it's, it might happen. There's an apartment available in that building. Really? Yeah. I love this building. Yeah, this building's good. All right. Yeah. Well thanks again for talking My and, pleasure. and that's a good place. Excellent. Thank you. I need to pee.